Welcome to Object Number One. I'm Alison Maloney and I'm a curator and writer. In this series, supported by the Centre for Fashion Curation at UAL, I speak with curators about the first object that audiences encounter when they enter the exhibition. Like the opening sentence of a book, the first object sets the scene for the narrative to unfold. Through these conversations, we unpack the exhibition making process, the agency that objects hold and how curators unlock this. We look back at seminal shows and those that have just opened. I'm speaking with Amy De La Haye. Amy is a dress curator and writer and was formerly fashion curator at the V&A, where she staged the seminal 1994 street style exhibition. She is a professor and joint director of the Research Centre for Fashion Curation at the London College of Fashion, where Amy's current project involves working with Simon Costin and the Museum of British Folklore on folk costume and folk art. In this podcast, we discuss the exhibition Ravishing, The Rose in Fashion, which was held at the museum at FIT in New York between August the 6th and November the 28th, 2021. It's great to be speaking with you, Amy. Thank you. I'm delighted to contribute to another of your inspired projects. Oh, thank you. Can you tell us about the show and the symbolism of the rose? Certainly. Well, roses are a fashion mainstay, but since about 2010, they've been harnessed by an unprecedentedly politicised fashion industry whose creatives have variously um, explored the rose's paradoxical beauty. We've got the exquisite fragility and fragrance of the flower combined with the savage thorns. I mean, technically they're prickles, but we've always called them thorns. And it's a conjunction of opposites, which creatives have always found completely compelling. And so throughout history, not just fashion designers, but all sorts of designers, artists and writers have variously drawn allusions to love, beauty, sex, sexuality, sin, gendered identities, rites of passage, transgression, um, degradation and death. So the rose is entwined with all sorts of stories. In recent years, it's really been harnessed by the fashion industry to raise awareness to all sorts of critical issues, including racism, sexism, body, skin and age diversity, mental health issues, to genital mutilation, also the environment and sustainability. And there's all sorts of parallels between roses and fashion. For a start, we could, both industries started in about the late 19th century. Both industries, you know, harnessed a clientele by wetting their desires with, you know, completely an ever-changing array of form and colour, texture. Roses, like fashion, are luxury. They're both worn. They're both ephemeral. They can incite obsession and passion, unlike many other things. They're both shown on the catwalk, garden shows. And also, you know, they're entwined with all sorts of stories about trade, migration, colonialism, consumerism, to name a few. So I had a project that was redolent with meaning and really ripe for exploration. But one of the things that really ignited it was I'd found a quote in the V&A archive, literally in the 1990s, and I'd held on to it. It was a handwritten note. Charles James wrote in his own hand, fashion is a little like radium or like essence of roses, which if undiluted would asphyxiate. And I just thought it's the most incredible statement entwining the two. Before we go on to the symbolism, you were saying that both industries started in the 19th century. We're talking about the kind of industrialization and modernity of the fashion industry, but do you mean the kind of agriculture and the growing of the rose for household consumption? Is that what you mean? 
Yes, absolutely. Both industries emerged at about the same time. Can you tell me about the symbolism then of the rose? I think the rose, perhaps more than any other flower, is steeped in symbolism, maybe more than any other thing in the world. And also meaning shift, but many of the meanings attributed to the rose, I think, are really quite near universal. The buds associated with virginity, the open flower with sexual consummation. Also in terms of colour, so white roses are associated with purity, red with passion. The idea of the black rose, although there's really no no truly black flowers in nature, is associated with transgression. And also what I found really exciting is the, until really quite recently, impossibility of the blue rose and its association with decadence and unavailability and how that was like really beloved by the late 19th century symbolists and decadence. So just so many stories. Also, in terms of the rose, it's been likened to the human body, um, particularly the female body, and notably like the lips, the nipples and clitoris. And then in literature and art, obviously, roses have been personified. So there's all sorts of lovely interweavings where humans and roses are intertwined and their stories and industries are paralleled and entwined. How has the history of the rose informed the symbolism that we see today? Well, the rose is one of the oldest plants. It certainly dates back about 35 to 40 million years. And depictions of wild roses have been found in cave paintings. What I found really interesting about the rose is that it's sort of promiscuous and it's rebunctuous. I love that word. And it grows over much of the Earth's surface. So it relates to so many people in the world can relate to the rose. But the act of cultivating, sort of caring for roses, dates back at least 5000 BC in Central Asia. And in Greek mythology, the origin of the rose is attributed to Chloris, who was the goddess of flowers, who came across, or is said to have come across a lifeless nymph and was really distressed and reincarnated as a new flower. And the flower that Chloris chose was a rose. And then other gods came in and gave the rose various attributes. So Aphrodite bestowed beauty, other gods bestowed perfume, radiance, And then in terms of ornamenting the body, certainly humans have ornamented the body back to at least ancient Egyptian times when the flower was used to beautify and its petals were charred to darken the brows. Also, I've really had a long-term fascination with artificial flowers and until this project, I've never really been able to explore their history and materiality and how they relate to the body. and. Interestingly, artificial flowers date back probably to about ancient Egypt. So humans have always really missed the absence of flowers when the earth no longer yields them. And so have made substitutes, what were historically known as permanent botanicals. And this was one of my favourite aspects of the exhibition was having the opportunity to explore artificial roses. How did then the show come about? The show came about because I was just thinking one day and talking to my friend Rose and Mari about projects we'd like to do. And we just started talking and I started, I just started thinking about roses. But usually my projects are ignited, as you know, by an object or a group of objects or an archive. But a number of things had come together that made me think about this and they weren't object-led. One was another quote that I'd held on to for ages, which was by T.S. Eliot. And he wrote for the roses had the look of flowers that are looked at and I held on to that and thought I'm going to use that one day 
And then I do quite a lot of work at show studio. And I'd always loved the really sublime portraits of roses that Nick Knight had posted um, every Sunday called Roses from My Garden on Instagram. And then one day I was at show studio and he showed me the prints and they were just, oh, they were just, they were sublime. And I just kept thinking about them. And then the other thing was I've grown up with a mother who adores roses, has always had a rose plant in preference to any other flower. And so she's really the true rosarian. I guess not me, I'm a bit of an imposter. So those came together. And then in 2019, I was at the museum at FIT and I was just talking to Valerie Steele, the inspirational director there, and Colleen Hill, who's an esteemed fashion curator colleague, and just discussed this. And they said, well, you know, that's quite exciting. And so I developed it into a proposal, which they accepted, which I was completely over the moon about. And the exhibition was, this was in 2019. I didn't have masses of time. And the exhibition was scheduled for September 2020. But then, of course, COVID hit. FIT stands for the Fashion Institute of Technology, and it's it's based in New York. It's a university. It's a teaching it is, school. It's a bit like London College of Fashion, where I work. It's a, it's a university, a fashion-focused university with a collection. But FIT has a world-leading collection, you know, not unlike the V&A, the Met, Kyoto, um, you know, Galliera in Paris. And like those museums, its collection policy really focuses upon innovation, cutting edge, design that leads. You know, it's unashamedly elitist in that respect. So for me, it it just was extraordinary because it's not really since I've been at the V&A that I've just had a chance to rifle through the store. And I made several research visits, thankfully, before COVID, and rifle through the stores I did because normally if you were doing an exhibition, you would look at documentation and key words and museum collections, obviously dress collections are classified in terms of usually the binary gender and increasingly that's more fluid, period, object type, materials. They're certainly not classified by flowers. And even when a flower type is mentioned, it's often the wrong flower that's listed. So began the really exciting task, basically, of going through every single cupboard in the museum stores, searching for roses. And given my, well, I couldn't wait, basically. So I headed straight to the hat store to look for artificial roses. And it's got like most museums, it's got like rolling stock. And then the hats are on open display, each one very carefully supported with tissue amounts. But what was extraordinary was that I could see them all on shelves. It wasn't like I had to keep unpacking boxes. So Colleen and I rifled through them all and pulled out any hat that had any reference to roses. So how did you begin to classify these assortments of hats? How did you open the show? It came really quickly and easily, surprisingly quickly. We had over 100 hats on pristine white tables laid with tissue and I just started looking at them and classifying them so I arranged them and I kept thinking it's a bit like plant classification as well I started arranging them into type so I had skull caps with roses hats that were ornamented with rose leaves they just seemed to naturally just come together into groups and I took photographs of them all came back to the UK and then the pandemic hit. So from home, I started drawing 
hat stands that looked a bit like rose shrubs with the clusters of object types. I worked very closely with curator Colleen Hill as co-curator and with Kim Ackert who, from Ackert Architecture who designed the exhibition. And I started sending Kim images of garden architecture and she designed a trellis-like form and organised the design of the hat stands. My exhibition was in the two major galleries downstairs at FIT and normally you walk down a staircase, open the doors into this magical environment. But I felt really strongly I wanted the encounter to start at the top of the stairs and so I made a special plea from the outset that could the walls be painted with a design of really, an almost sort of surreal-like design of thick, thorny, fairy tale-like rose branches with enormous thorns on to set the mood. So it was a bit like an Alice in Wonderland experience. So visitors went down the stairwell of thorny roses and into the gallery. And the first thing they saw was a pergola-like structure um, based on garden architecture. And within the structure were all these hat stands that looked like shrubs flowering with the most extraordinary array of rosy hats. And so the first object, in a way, was an installation. It was a composite installation. Their first experience was a mass of roses, not unlike entering a rose garden. So how many hats were there on display and and what time frame did they cover? There must have been about 70 hats. And they spanned from about the 1830s to Stephen Jones, a miniature top hat, which was not unlike the style of a late 19th century, with a gorgeous pink artificial silk rose on it, which made reference to the wonderful film My Fair Lady, which was all about a flower seller. And so in relation to the Rose Garden Vista installation that people encountered, what's the connection and is there a connection between the Rose Garden and fashion? There's all sorts of links between the Rose Garden and fashion, but what really captured my imagination was that in the late 19th century, there were parties held at dusk, which is when the rose is most fragrant and the flower most fulsome. And so if you can imagine people, predominantly females, going to a rose-themed garden party at dusk, dressed in rosy fashions, maybe wearing rosy perfume, because of course perfume is also worn, There was a big vogue for fans that were made from real roses, sometimes as many as about 19. So can you imagine the size of that? Maybe more modest fans that were decorated with roses. Some of them had um, in the handle a little vial of perfume that might be roses. And so people mingling at dusk amidst roses, amidst, amidst the scent of natural roses, wearing rosy fashions. And that really captured my imagination so much so that I requested that the walls be painted a dull violet colour to represent dusk, the time that roses are most fragrant and fulsome. And was it possible to have scent within the exhibition? I would have loved to have had scent within the exhibition. We did discuss it. It's complex because of health and safety purposes, but we did discuss having kiosks, booths. But with COVID, basically the exhibition was reduced to its bare bones insofar as all of the loans that we'd requested we could no longer have and the exhibition 
was about 99% drawn from the museum's collection, thankfully the most amazing collection. But it did mean that our ambitions were greatly scaled down. COVID also had a huge impact upon the placement of objects and the object route because, I mean, I was actually really lucky because so many people had their projects cancelled at the onset of COVID and mine wasn't cancelled. And if anything, when it opened post-COVID in August, if anything, I think the exhibition had more impact because it was joyful. It was at a time when the roses were flowering, but it was just at the time that people were allowed to go out, start going to exhibitions. So we had to ensure that people didn't cluster, that the galleries weren't crowded. So the texts, I could only write text for a few objects, but people could go online because there was obviously a label for every object. And as curators, we all know how hard it is to adhere to the usual format of about 150 words for a text panel and about 50 words for a label. But I had to write even less because we didn't want people standing still for too long and standing close together. There was a text panel and it is quite short. Can you read it for us, please? Yes, with pleasure. The Rose Garden of Hats. Won't you come into my garden? I would like my roses to see you. Attributed to Richard Barnsley Sheridan, 1751 to 1816. Poet and playwright, late 18th century. The museum at FIT has a magnificent collection of hats, many of which are exhibited here for the first time. They're arranged into rose-themed groups, including examples that resemble a rose in form, hats constructed using artificial rose leaves, skull caps decorated with artificial roses, miniatures, and variously decorated straw hats. As fabric flowers are delicate, few rose-decorated hats from the 18th and 19th centuries survive in good condition. Thorns, symbolising pain, sin and sorrow, and which could snag fabric or skin, rarely feature. And amongst this selection of hats, was there one in particular that encapsulated the concepts that you were drawing out in the show? Absolutely. On my very first visit, I absolutely fell in love with one hat. It was by an American designer called Mr John, who isn't very well known today, but was internationally famous in the mid-20th century. It was everything I hoped I'd find. Normally, when you propose an exhibition, you provide an object list. But for this exhibition, apart from the most beautiful Charles James evening dress, I wasn't really aware of what rosy objects the museum had. So I really was going on a journey of discovery. And when I saw this hat, I thought this embodies everything I had hoped for my exhibition. So can you read the object label, please? Yeah. Mr. John, Primavera hat. Pale pink artificial rose petals, artificial daisies. Pink wild roses, violets and small yellow flowers, circa 1950 United States. The Museum at FIT, 76, 199.4, gift of Blanche the Bomb. Primavera means spring in Italian and Spanish. The word is also used to describe the personification of spring. This rose-like hat is strewn with pink cotton and velour rose petals and decorated with artificial wild roses and other spring flowers. So what was it about this hat that captivated you? It was exquisitely beautiful, but it was also incredibly simple. In many ways, it was ex exquisite simplicity. Many of the hats I'd been looking at were made using the most exquisite silk satin, which was sheeny, lovely, lush silk velvet, lacquered straw. This hat is made using really matte materials. It's starched cotton that's 
was very matte, very pale, and also it was roses on roses. The hat took the form of a rose flower, and on top of the flower were various spring flowers, including tiny wild pink roses. So it was roses on roses. And was this in keeping with the work of Mr John? Can you tell us a little bit about him? Actually, no, I don't think the hat was terribly typical for him. He was known for very witty hats, for very glamorous hats. In the mid-20th century, he he had a huge international business employing about 200 skilled workers. His clients included Greta Garbo, Malena Dietrich, Marilyn Monroe, also the Duchess of Windsor, who was famous for wearing surreal designs by Scaparelli, whose hats were also included in the Rose Garden of Hats. And if if the label could have been longer, I would have loved to have talked about Mr John. I'd also have liked to have talked about Blanche Thebom, who had gifted it to the museum, because she was a really famous mezzo-soprano. She was also famed for her beauty, but notably her exquisite hair. She had thick, thick, dark hair, wavy hair, that reached down to her feet and beyond. And if I'd tried to be at my most poetic, I might have likened her hair maybe to uh, branches with the flower on top of her head. But also even on just thinking about it on a practical level, with that much hair, you're quite restricted in terms of the sort of hat you can wear. So this hat simply sat on the top of her head. So there was all sorts of extra material I would have liked to include. I'd have also liked to make reference to Salvador's famous painting called Woman with a Head of Roses. But as it was, it had to be terribly simple and short because of COVID. What stage in the process did you decide on the Garden of Hats concept? Quite early on, I had two galleries. And having looked at the hats and realising quite how many there were, and also, you know, like fashion trends, exhibitions are subject to fashion. They're also subject to the preoccupations of the curators who care for them. And Valerie Steele loves shoes. She's exhibited shoes, but the hats have never been exhibited as a group or, you know, many, many of them had never been displayed at all. So it seemed the most wonderful opportunity to foreground this collection. And as such, I knew I wanted a gallery devoted to hats. The exhibition came to the Garden Museum in London. Did you open the show with the installation of the Rose Garden? Well, very sadly, because of COVID, I didn't get to install Ravishing, which was really devastating. People kept asking me, is it going to come to London? Is it going to come to London? And no, it wasn't a touring exhibition. So I'd been doing some work at the Garden Museum, which I adore. And I proposed that I do a very different exhibition adapted to the preoccupations of the Garden Museum called Wild and Cultivated Fashioning the Rose, which I invited Simon Costin to join me and was delighted when he said yes. So we worked together and did a very different multimedia exhibition which explored wild and cultivated in nature in objects and had imagery. We, The lead image for the exhibition was the most wonderful Tim Walker femme fleur of, of a rose woman. Nick Knight lent us a gorgeous picture of yellow roses from his garden. We had raw clay roses by Phoebe Cummings So a real mixture of objects. I also explored the history of the artificial flower industry with specific reference to London. So it told very different stories. It was associated, but it was a very different exhibition with different narratives for a very different demographic. And you said that you couldn't install the exhibition at FIT because of COVID. 
So when you finally got to go over there and you entered the exhibition, was it how you had imagined it to be? Throughout the process, Colleen and Thomas and Fred very kindly kept sending me photographs and videos of the installation. So I did have a really good idea, but I did feel terribly strongly that I wanted to go into the exhibition on my own and encounter it in the empty gallery on my own. It was beautiful. Many of my projects, or most of my projects, have been quite social and quite politicised. And this exhibition did have political content, but it was also a celebration of beauty. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you check out the other episodes in the season. And please rate and review as it helps others to find us.